everybody, Dick Ebert here. Uh, this is going to be a little different podcast tonight. Uh, sometimes life throws you a curveball and you just got to uh, take some time for family and, and deal with things. Everything will be good. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday for a normal small council. Until then, Gene has decided to uh, be my champion uh, and go it alone tonight. So you get to hear 30 minutes of uh, Gene Lyons. Appreciate it, Gene. Look forward to talking to everybody on Thursday. And here you go, Gene. Welcome back to Shout on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, A Game of Thrones. This week's episode was entitled Beyond the Wall, where John and the Brotherhood hunt the dead, Arya confronts Sansa, and Tyrion thinks about the future. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and I'm alone on the throne tonight, but thankfully I have you, the listeners, the loyal masses who have followed this television masterpiece for seven seasons, some of whom are really pissed. Listeners like Mac, who wrote, Over the past two seasons, I've begun to dislike the character of Arya more and more. This most recent episode officially made her my number one least favorite character on the show. The way she acted with Sansa was preposterous and psychotic. This was all topped off with the uncomfortable scene where she literally threatens to cut her own sister's face off with a dagger. I understand that Arya and Sansa may not have been close, but still, threatening your sister, the most powerful person in Winterfell, is not a smart play. Or listeners like Nick B., who wrote, I understand how the plot has to be moved, and I know it's a show with dragons, but come on, man. Let's believe in physics, at least a little bit. And if we're going to turn Drogon into a Greyhound bus to get out of battle, why are we taking a boat home? Great and horrible episode all in one. First half showed some Lord of the Rings style walking, followed by wrapping it up quick and dirty at the end. And other listeners who were even more pissed, like Gillian, who wrote, None of the conversations felt natural. Nothing felt like these characters would actually be talking like this or about the shit they were forced to say. John's acting during his love scene with Daenerys, I thought he was dead, like I legit thought she made his heart stop, because there was nothing, no emotions, no anything, just dead. And sure enough, he wasn't dead, just in love with her, like what a pathetic fucking steaming pile of bullshit. Other listeners like Tom C. said, I gotta be honest, I'm almost starting to get the sense this is a color by numbers at this point. In the early seasons, you never knew who was going to die next or what was going to happen. Starting to feel like everything is becoming way too predictable. And finally, there was the prolific writer Tiago, who says, The moment when John kills the White Walker and all the whites but one fell apart was way too convenient. Then Gendry runs back home. My problem with this isn't the distance, because, yeah, we can't know for sure how long they've been walking. My problem is that Gendry never had been north before, not to say beyond the wall, and he finds the way back home, alone, in the dark. Even our fellow podcasts, like David Chen and Podcast Winterfell, were grumbling after seeing the penultimate episode of Season 7. So I thought... What were the biggest what-the-fuck moments, and can they be explained? We put a call out to the listeners, and you guys came through. So we're going to hit that up in this episode. In addition, we're going to talk about the show trying to outdo itself. And finally, some of the outstanding pieces of dialogue we saw that may salvage episode six from the dustbin of television crap. Let's start with those baffling moments that had us perplexed after episode six. I was staring at the screen. I was yelling, what the fuck, throwing my arms up in the air really trying to figure out what the hell is going on here, and Big D was doing the same on his end. And we weren't alone. People wrote in with questions about all sorts of things, and we had to narrow it down to the 10 biggest what-the-fuck moments and try to explain them all, starting off with Gendry's run. 
how the hell does this guy run so far, so fast, and not freeze to death? Now, I don't know about the cold, but there was a guy named Dean Carnazes uh, who has completed a number of endurance events, mostly running events, also a swimming event. But his most notable achievement includes a 350-mile run that he did in 80 hours and 44 minutes without sleep back in 2005. Now, this guy's a trained runner. I'm not saying Gendry is. Frankly, I was surprised that a blacksmith uh, was fast and that John seemed to know it. Maybe they did some sprints during the the trek up north. I don't know. But apparently John knew Gendry was really fast. We also don't know that the party went in a straight line. So it's conceivable that they were roaming around, in which case, yeah, maybe they weren't that far from Eastwatch when shit went down. Again, if you believe the theory that the Night King was setting a trap, maybe he set a trap where he knew that they'd be able to go out and get help. I don't know. Again, I'm trying here, guys. Next up, the whites dying so easy. A lot of people said, you know, why are they so easy, brittle to kill? We didn't see that before. If you think back to uh, season one, John battles Othor's corpse from Benjen's scouting party. And he's fighting it. He's hacking it. He's impaling it. Nothing works until he figures out fire. Now we see these whites falling apart left and right. Now, in the books and for the hardcore, people would say Dragonglass has no additional effect on whites. It's meant to kill white walkers. But we see in the TV show Game of Thrones, John said in Season 6, Episode 2, that Dragonglass can be used on whites. So apparently it's hyper-effective against whites and white walkers. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice that Jorah has some Dragonglass daggers, as Big D has pointed out. Uh, also, there is a makeshift dragon glass axe, and it's conceivable that between the Valerian steel and the dragon glass, they have additional effect on whites, and they can make them crumble at quite a quick pace. Still, it was kind of astonishing to see them wipe out that many whites when just one gave John trouble in season one. Again, he's had some more time to practice, but not all of them have. Moving on from the supernatural to just the plain natural, people asked, how did they not all freeze to death standing outside? Now, if you subscribe to the theory that the Raven took two days to get down to Dragonstone, and then Daenerys took about two days to get back up, and that's being pretty generous, you'd say that it took about four days. This also coincides with the ice freezing back over, so let's say it was a four-day run overall. This one's tricky. Snowshin 7 have no shelter for about four days and nights. You could argue they got flaming swords, but again, wouldn't that be something worth showing? Showing Beric strike a flame and keep them all warm, maybe the hound cowering away from it? After all that, they're frozen, they're starved, they haven't slept, they still have the strength to fight. The hound is a pretty hard motherfucker. Like, I, I believe he might be able to stick it out. Tormund is used to the cold, this is his natural habitat, and Beric and Jon, they're essentially undead, so maybe they're unaffected too. Gendry ran off, and Thoros, well, he died, so he had a realistic reaction too. I'll buy this one. The fourth point is Daenerys' arrival and her outfit. If she took two days to reach the Jonner party, flying through snow, sleet, hail, whatever Westeros has to throw at her, she actually looks pretty great. I understand she's royalty, she wants to sit on the Iron Throne, she needs to instill belief, and so she's got to look good. And most royalty has a number of outfits. Maybe this one was put together for some white party that she planned to attend. Get it? White party? So perhaps the most iconic scene of all of episode 6 is when the Night King tragically strikes Viserion down with an ice spear. Or ice javelin, as some people are calling it. We've made a lot of fun of this scene, but it really is meant to be tragic. It's supposed to be gut-wrenching. Uh, a lot of people felt more for the dragons than they did for any humans uh, in the show this season. 
So, as I said on the Instacast, we don't know the extent of the Night King's powers. He might be strong enough to do this, and clearly it seems that he is. He also has the accuracy. Assuming that the whole thing was a trap to capture a dragon, or at least to get an edge on Jon Snow and Daenerys, why would he target Viserion? It seems like Drogon would be the obvious choice. He's on the ground, he's the biggest, he's the one that Daenerys rides. There are a couple different ideas on this, and I think all of them hold a little bit of water. One of them is the potential blast radius. We see when Viserion goes down, uh, there's fire, uh, there's blood. The Night King is pretty close. Uh, it's like in Top Gun, switching from missiles to guns, right? He doesn't want to be uh, blown uh, away by fire, as Jamie almost was. Seems like he's a pretty smart guy, values self-preservation. But another response that I thought was pretty good is Viserion is airborne. The Night King doesn't necessarily know that the spear is going to kill the dragon. In fact, he might even know that it's not powerful enough. But the impact of crashing into the ice from that altitude could be a compacting effect that actually kills the dragon. And therefore, I think that might have been the intent uh, also, Drogon might have seen it coming, Viserion might not have. Or maybe Viserion is a smaller dragon and therefore maybe easier to kill. There's lots of ways it could have gone. Or maybe it's just the way they wanted the story to go. Who knows? Which brings us to what the fuck moment number six. The Whites having chains on hand. Big D had to calm me down after this one because I was losing my shit. I was shouting, what the hell is going on here? What has this show become? And Big D goes, did you... Pay attention to what their surroundings were. Did it look familiar to you at all? Maybe a harbor. And I looked and I said, you know what? You're right. You've got rocks surrounding it. You've got a big body of water that's near the coastline between Eastwatch and Hardhome. Perhaps the Night King chose to be found in this very spot. Or, as other people have suggested, it could be the chains were salvaged after the massacre at Hardhome, which is a port itself. I think it would have been much more satisfying to see the Night King actually raise Viserion out of the water uh, by will alone, as a demonstration of his power. Uh, it would have been a more exciting scene, and they'd have less to explain for it. But again, the chains, completely possible, maybe not plausible. Which brings us to head-scratcher number seven, Jon Snow surviving the depths. He's tackled by a gang of whites. He's thrown underwater. He's got all those heavy furs on. He's been freezing for days, and somehow he survives this swim. Or does he? Now, we know that people have frozen frames, played slow motion, and noticed that Longclaw appears to be alive, that the eye opens before John appears from the water. If this is a stunner to you, I apologize. Go Google it right now uh, or, or catch us on Twitter. Uh, there is a very clear frame-by-frame. Frame. You see Longclaw's eye open up. Again, it's also referenced, I believe, in Season 6, Episode 4. Uh, on the pommel of the sword, the wolf's eye opens up. So, belief here is that Longclaw actually brought Jon Snow back, which, you know, begs the question, uh, is there a power behind it? Now, some people have said it's Bran warging into the sword. Um, entirely possible. We haven't seen him do anything like that yet, but it is something maybe that he can do. His powers are ever-expanding. Uh, others believe that it was the Lord of Light, uh, as you see the parallels between Beric and John being resurrected, um, or it e even could be the Night King himself. If the Night King himself has different plans and John is instrumental in those plans, maybe it is the Night King allowing him uh, to survive or be resurrected. But there definitely is something going on with the sword. It could even be sentient itself. A possibility, if you really want to get super Harry Potter in here, is that John died again. 
uh, and Longclaw's animation was signaling his uh, return to the living. Uh, maybe it's like his Horcrux. He's tied to it. It is what brings him back. I don't know. We'll have to see. But again, Jon Snow surviving the deaths, it doesn't make sense because I don't think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be a miracle. The question is, does the audience have patience for more miracles with Jon Snow? He sure is cute. All right. Speaking of miracles that happened to Jon Snow, point number nine, Benjen saving the day. Okay, Uncle Benjen, this isn't the first time we've seen him ride to the rescue. He helped out Bran when all hope was lost, uh, when he was being chased down by whites as well. Uh, in that scene, he tells Bran something very important that I think carries over into this episode. People were like, why doesn't Benjen jump on the horse? Go with Jon. Uh, in the scene with Bran, he says, the wall is not just ice and stone. Ancient spells were carved into its foundations. Strong magic to protect men from what lies beyond. And while it stands, the dead cannot pass. I cannot pass. So if Benjen can't pass the wall because he's dead, maybe he knows the best he can do is buy Jon Snow time uh, by fighting off as many whites as he can with his Lantern of Doom. Although that makes sense for Benjen, it begs an entirely different question, which is, if the dead can't get through, how is this party going to get through the wall, which we see them do, with a white? Do they simply fly over the wall? Is that enough? Or is it some sort of a barrier that extends indefinitely? Who knows? But they do get a a moving animated white south of the wall, and so Benjen's entire story seems to not hold water. In solving one mystery, I seem to have created another. And finally... The puzzling point that many of you brought up, John calling Daenerys Danny. Okay, we've seen him at Dragonstone. She demands that he bend the knee, as she does with most people she meets. And there's a standoff. And there's a trade that's implied there, right? Which is, you bend the knee, I give you my support. He hasn't bent the knee, yet she brought her support. And now, in the confines of a ship, they're meeting each other halfway. But he calls Daenerys Danny. This brings up some bad memories for Daenerys. Uh, she does not look fondly on the last person who called her Danny, uh, assuming that's Viserys. And it's very bold of him to do so. But I think there's a reason behind this. And here's the thing. Look back at Jon. Now, he's not Dario. Uh, he's not Tyrion. Uh, he's not Jaime. The, the guy's not great with words. But beyond that, uh, he's not a real smooth talker when it comes to women. I mean, look at his... Love life. His last romance wasn't exactly, you know, Casanova material. Uh, Jon Snow, for all his heroics, for all his moral fiber, for all of his sense of right in handing Jorah, offering him Longclaw back, uh, in, in his sense of duty, he's not real good with the ladies. He's kind of awkward. So this might be his awkward way of hitting on Daenerys. He's kind of probing out, right? reaching out to her and seeing how she reacts to uh, a nickname. If any of us tried it, it wouldn't work. But this is Jon Snow. Also, he just died again, whether you take that figuratively or literally. He may have actually just died. When you're at that point, maybe you don't have a lot to lose. So it's not like he was really worried about saving face at this point. He's got gaping wounds in his body. He's half frozen to death, and he's uh, laying there at her mercy. So why not take a stab at it? Good on you, Jon Snow. Good on you. And although we had some absurd action sequences and clunky dialogue in episode six, I feel like there were some outstanding pieces of dialogue that revealed a lot about characters, took us back to sort of the roots of what we really love about Game of Thrones, and really 
made it two episodes in one. And I want to start with talking about Arya uh, taking Littlefinger's bait and turning on Sansa. Like, we didn't predict this. We thought that Arya had set the trap, Littlefinger had fallen into it, thinking that he had laid a trap himself. But it looks like the show was going in the direction that Littlefinger has got the upper hand. Um, it still remains to be seen. There are there are factors at play. People have said, you know, maybe Arya was using different faces. Maybe Sansa's testing him out. Uh, what's the story with Brienne of Tarth being sent away? Does that show that uh, Sansa doesn't want to play into Littlefinger's hands? If he sees a piece on the chessboard uh, that could endanger her or could give him the upper hand, she wants to remove it. Beyond all that, we got to applaud that we're getting back to the powerful dialogue and how characters feel about their extraordinary paths. I wanted to see, now that we are in Season 7, now that they've come this far, how do they feel about the things that happen to them when they're alone in a room with just another family member? One of the most powerful things Arya does in this episode is she tells a story about when she was practicing archery, when she wasn't supposed to be, and she was being watched by her father and applauded. And she says, quote, I knew what I was doing was against the rules, but he was smiling. So I knew it wasn't wrong. The rules were wrong. I was doing what I was meant to be doing. And he knew it. This harkens back to Ned, the fondness, the warmth of Winterfell that we saw in season one. It also talks a lot about what Arya is doing here and usurping a natural order, becoming something other, and really taking a position as one of the strongest, if not in overly strong female characters uh, in the show. Some people have argued that, you know, her combination of intelligence and lethality might be putting her in a deus ex machina position. Uh, but we'll forgive that and, and, and go on to really see how this impacts the two of them. But we also see in this episode that Arya's recollection is not perfect. When she's relating Ned's death scene and accusing Sansa of being complicit or at least complacent uh, in his death, she says that Sansa looked pretty, that her hair was done up, that she was standing there on the platform, um, and seems to believe that Sansa somehow was taking this all in stride. When, in fact, if you remember back to that episode, Sansa was pleading. She was distraught. Um, she was not enjoying herself. She was not in league with the Lannisters. So you've got to think it goes one of two ways. Either Arya was a child and memories become distorted through anger, and she clearly is harboring a lot of anger. I mean, she has a list of people she wants to kill. Or Arya is acting, using, again, skills that she learned in the past uh, to get the upper hand or at least to suss out what is going on in the situation with Littlefinger, what is going on in Winterfell. But again, all this is expressed through dialogue. There's no big fight scene. Uh, there are some odd threats about cutting off you know, faces with Tiago pointed out. Uh, but again, overall, I was talking through episodes one through six about the lack of dialogue that was happening. And here we see it coming on strong. And there's other examples like Tormund. Poor Tormund. First, he almost gets killed in the episode with people, I swear, rooting for him to die just because we want to see somebody of importance die. But beyond that, there were people taking shots at the fact the guy attempted to make humorous comments during a chat with a bunch of other guys walking across the ice. First of all, look, it's boring out there. It's a tundra. You're not going into battle. Someone's got to say something. Here's the thing with Torment. He's got a very wild view of sexuality, uh, and these guys are relatively puritanical. They're showing the contrast of this big brute with a heart of gold uh, versus the hound, who also presumably has something good deep down inside, but is much darker. 
Sure, it's dick humor. Sure, it betrays the gravity of the mission. But remember, Tormund is home now. He's feeling good north of the wall where he belongs. And those moments of levity really led to us caring more about the fact that he was being pulled underwater by whites. In fact, if you look, as I mentioned in the Instacast, at shows like The Walking Dead, there's a pattern of making you feel something for a character right before you kill them away. I like the fact that they kind of pulled a switcheroo on us. At the same time, his situation did seem pretty dire. I thought he was a goner. Um, Glad to have him around, but I don't know if the situation rang true. As far as dialogue goes, the way he's playing off the Hound, the way he's playing off of Gendry, uh, the way he's interacting with everyone, he's just bringing some heart of the North into the show. I don't fault him for that. And during the same March North, we have terrific dialogue between Beric and Jon Snow. Now, that one goes deep. Instead of being funny, it's really at the heart of matters. And on this show, we've argued dragons and the origin of the Night King and how fast things move and who's telling the truth and what is someone's true identity. But we haven't gotten to the core of why people are doing the things they're doing. And Beric has a very fatalistic view of his service to the Lord of Light. He is not an optimist per se. He's a realist and also a man of duty like Jon Snow. He says to Jon, the enemy always wins. He also tells him, you and I won't find much joy while we're here, but at least we can keep others alive. He is identifying death as the enemy, uh, an adversary that you can never triumph over, but at the same time, you have to fight your entire life. It's true for all of us, right? There's a lot of depth there. I wonder if we're being led to believe that Beric and John are the same or just like each other. And with their resurrections, you see a parallel. With their service to the Lord of Light, maybe not. John never really left who he was, as we see in this episode. He's a man torn between love and a duty of the Night's Watch. In this case, he, he sort of reiterates his oath to the Brotherhood, but at the same time, you see that he has an affection for Daenerys and Therefore, he is torn in that same crucible that he felt between Egret and the Night's Watch. Again, powerful dialogue. And a lot of people are asking, where's Euron in all this? What's going on at Casterly Rock? They had to make time for this dialogue to play out. I'm glad they didn't try to fit every character into this episode. It seemed a little more focused. The only time we go south in this episode is to explore what's going on at Dragonstone. And there's a great conversation between Tyrion and Daenerys, that reveals what I called in the Instacast a respectful riff. Tyrion is telling Daenerys that if she wants to build a new world, she has to meet with Cersei, and she has to do it without traps of her own, that she needs to be present a strong front and be guarded, but at the same time, also expect Cersei to be a little underhanded and not to, uh, to flip out at any insults or anything like that. So Tyrion says that you know they need to do things without deceit and murder. And Daenerys replies, that which war was won without deceit and murder? Uh, she's pushing back, and there's a, a, a struggle between the two of them as far as a, a philosophical debate. But what's interesting about all this is Tyrion, I think, has the biggest reveal in that he's thinking long-term, uh, whereas Daenerys is thinking short-term. He's thinking legacy. He's thinking what happens after her. Uh, he's not just planning on building for tomorrow. And one of the things he says that's really powerful is... Aegon built the wheel. The wheel that Daenerys has referred to, this metaphor of a, a spinning cycle that, that rotates between lords and, and crushes the poor, that she wants to break that. But he points out that Aegon, a Targaryen, created the wheel in the first place, that this metaphorical wheel is actually 
Daenerys's legacy. So she needs to really take stock of who she is as a person and and the heritage that she comes from, and not point the finger anywhere else than her own uh, bloodline. The conversation also calls out the ridiculousness of heroes that we've seen and their fate. Uh, the show is getting very introspective here, very meta, looking at itself, and and you think that this is going to uh, create a bit of a hinge. Uh, as far as how the characters will react, who is acting out of blind heroism and who is acting out of intellect and which is the more appealing of the two or which is the better of the two uh, as far as people go. And what's interesting is you see Daenerys charge into battle shortly after that and therefore um, it is grasping that hero role for the women in the show. But at the same time, it's also saying, has she learned a lesson? Is she capable of being taught from these people? I think she's matured a lot through this season and through the series as a whole, but it it remains to be seen, does she see herself as the hero, the short-term victor, the one who will change the world uh, in one burning moment uh, and not necessarily have the slow burn or the wisdom or the providence to govern? All this provides foreshadowing that the show must deliver on again, and they're really writing a tall order here for the upcoming finale. If it sounds like I'm giving Game of Thrones a pass after ripping apart shows like Westworld, American Gods, and Taboo, that's really not the case. I don't forgive all these mistakes or overlook the problems that the show's having, but what I'd like to see is a return to form. We saw some great stuff in seasons one through four, some good stuff in seasons five and six, and I'd like to get back to that place. But in talking about those earlier seasons, though, we should also talk about how those seasons contributed to some of the problems that season seven's having. And I really do think the show is trying to outdo itself in a lot of ways. You look at Jon Snow and how ridiculous his near deaths are becoming, right? They have to find new perils for him, new dangers for him to face. And it's following any other show that jumps the shark. We're getting to that dangerous territory. And I know I spoke some forbidden words when it comes to Game of Thrones, but let's think about this. So Jon Snow, we know he can be brought back now, right? So how do you scare us about him? He has to... he has to find love again that gives him a vulnerability. Um, we have to put him in situations where the thing that could kill him is more powerful than anything he's encountered before, right? Uh, direct interactions uh, with the Night King. You know, he ran into him at Hardhome. Here we see that even more of a connection there where he shows rage toward the Night King instead of just fear. You know, and you've got new monsters that have become more ferocious, right? Dragons are out there now. Uh, polar bears are out there now. Uh, the battles have to become more spectacular. You know, Battle of the Bastards, I thought, was the end-all, be-all of on-screen combat. And then we had the Burninator or Blackwater Rush, or some people are calling them the Fiery Fields, or even the Loot Train Battle, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that got bigger, and then this got even bigger. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of whites, three dragons at a time, you know. We have naval combat in this season. And so you're seeing that the show is trying constantly to outdo itself. And it makes sense. You've got an audience that's been watching you for several years now, and they want to see new things. They want to see bigger things. But I wonder if that's entirely the case. You know, someone made the joke on Twitter today that if some people had the show that they wanted, we'd still be watching Sir Davos and John on a boat on their way to Dragonstone for the first time. And you know what? That's a show that would suit me just fine. I like watching that kind of stuff. We've also seen now that the heroes have become more heroic. You know, Danny practically calls it out in that conversation with Tyrion. It's not enough to just have somebody who's brave, like Rob Stark or Grey Worm. Instead, we've got to have Beric with a flaming sword and Jon Snow with his living long claw. Heroes that are above and beyond. You've got Arya with whether you consider her a hero or a villain with these 
you know, superpowers. And of course, the pacing has become more rapid. If they're trying to keep us thrilled, keep us on the edge of our seats, they got to go, go, go. They're afraid to slow down. And I hope that the show isn't making these mistakes thinking they know what the audience wants. But again, we also got to think about the fact that we've attracted an entirely new audience. And that audience largely loves it. I've seen people on Facebook, on Twitter, who are absolutely crazy about this show, you know, said fuck, fuck, fuck was their reaction to the last episode and not in a bad way. And I think it comes down to this. Once you've seen Dragon's Attack, everything becomes about dragons. This show, which broke the mold of fantasy and therefore attracted an audience that normally would scoff at fantasy, is becoming the worst kind of fantasy. Everything can be explained by magic and dragons rather than cunning, honor, and ruthlessness that we saw in earlier seasons. And I really do hope it finds its way. I don't want to see Arya walking around with a bag of masks and wonder, is every character Arya? I don't want to see things controlled inexplicably and wonder, is that brand controlling it? You know, uh, is the Night King going to be a peril for the, you know, another year? I think a fitting way to end the show, to bring it to a close in season eight is to go back to the roots, go back to what made this show great. And I hope that we see more of that, uh, in the season seven finale, and not just an episode that's going to leave everyone with a sour taste in their mouths. And with that, we conclude the first ever edition of the Gene Lions on the Throne deep dive solo cast. Uh, Be sure to join us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, at ShadOnTV. On Facebook, search for us, ShadOnTV Podcast. Our website is ShadOnTV.com. And you can email me and Big D at hosts at shadowntv.com. Now, remember, this normally is a team podcast, not just me, and I appreciate you all indulging me. But if you'd like to hear more, wherever fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube, be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please be sure to leave a review that helps the podcast grow. And if you have any corrections to this deep dive, please write in. You can tweet us with the hashtag umactually, or go ahead and write us an email at hosts at shadowntv.com. Uh, with um actually as the subject line, and we'll get your correction in on the small council. Also, if you have any ideas that you want to share on the small council, we've already got some great theories rolling in about Longclaw, um, about what the Night King was up to, and about predictions for the season seven finale. Please go ahead and write us. Uh, we'd love to read them, possibly on the podcast itself. On behalf of my co-host, Big D Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Thursday for the Small Council. Thanks for listening, and as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne.